Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge. Uh, once again with me solo, Peter Bruce. Today, after the uh, reshuffle last night, on Monday night, I thought I would uh, uh, say a few words because in the hours and then sort of days before uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa finally announced his new cabinet, uh, nothing was more clear, I think, to me than the fact that he really, really, really doesn't want to be in this job much longer. He told MPs at his State of the Nation address a month ago, why do I do this job? And we all sort of sort of said to ourselves, yeah, well, you know, we were also wondering. Um, he then described his reason being there for, as being to sort of finish the work uh, of Nelson Mandela, which sounds heroic, but isn't really. Ramaphosa was close to Mandela, we know this. And obviously you would have learned some valuable lessons from him. One of them would have been about being on time. He, he once said, uh, you know, we learned, we learned about punctuality from two sources. One was Nelson Mandela. He was a stickler for things starting on time. He always said when you arrive late at any function or occasion, you are demonstrating disrespect for those people you are going to meet. Well, that's precisely what President Ramaphosa did before, in the hours before he... Uh, announced his new cabinet. He delayed and delayed, disrespected everybody. This is a and this was a process that's taken weeks, months even to get right. You know why was there such a disaster towards the end? Fortunately, we're a pretty vibrant uh, democracy. We've all been able to have our say on his delay in making the changes to his cabinet. Uh, and even though he was close to Mandela, I don't think anything can prepare you really for the country uh, as complex, as rough, as quarrelsome as we are in South Africa. What's even worse uh, for for people who run it is that we defied all the grim warnings of naysayers 25 years ago who liked to say there'd be one man, one vote in South Africa, but only once. In fact, we were a pretty, as I say, pretty vibrant democracy. Freedom of speech is almost limitless in the law. And if you find yourself bending to the thought police, remember that's all they are, mere words in the wind. I don't think the media has ever been more free in South Africa than it is now. My experience as an editor, for 17 of the 80 of the ANC's almost 30 years in power as any guide, this is a great place to say what you want. I was only threatened once in my whole time as editor, and that was by a pillar of the business establishment back in 1997 complained that I'd written about something I'd written uh, or the Financial Mail at the time had reported about his company, which he didn't like. The ANC only once complained about a story we published in Business Day and only then because it was completely incorrect. So we've all been able to vent our frustration at the lack of urgency displayed by Ramaphosa. Remember he was overwhelmingly re-elected ANC leader before Christmas and has subsequently had the annual January 8th statement, the State of the Nation Address, the debate on the State of the Nation Address, and then the budget, to do something. There's absolutely no reason to have delayed all this time for what we got on Monday night. One of the things that he said during the State of the Nation of the Address was that he, well, first of all, he declared a state of disaster in electricity, in South Africa, and announced at the same time he was appointing a minister for electricity. Despite al already having an energy minister in Guatemala and a public enterprises minister, um, which ministry is ESCOM's sole shareholder in Provence Gordon. So urgent was this task that he took a month to make an, an appointment, and something 
you know, something's just wrong here. The more I watch him, the more I'm convinced he doesn't want this job. You remember he tried to resign, or he certainly came close to resigning uh, towards the end of last year, and people stopped him. Uh, And I sometimes think that he stays in the job simply to stop somebody worse having it. You know, you only have to scan the room on the video from the December conference uh, to understand that as disappointing as Ramaphosa may be as president, he's by some distance the least worst uh, candidate. Getting a job you always wanted often triggers a sort of perverse remorse. It's like buying a house you've been longing for for years. You get it and it turns out not to be quite what you thought. The neighbors are terrible. Uh, there are leaks everywhere. Uh, damp you didn't see. Ramaphosa wears all the signs of buyer's remorse. His processes have, if anything, slowed down over the years. He started out very cautiously, careful not to make enemies. Nowadays he's anxious about his friends as well. Can he trust them? Obviously the Palapala game reserve, or game farm robbery or whatever it was, shines a harsh light on him. Uh, and appearing with his friend Yari Museveni, the president of Uganda now for nearly 40 years, at the Limpopo farm uh, the other day after taking time out because he was supposed to be sick, tells you all about where he'd rather be than running the country. And the question you have to ask is, you know, after Palapala and the accusation by the judicial review appointed by the National Assembly that Ramaphosa may indeed have broken the law and the constitution, whether he's actually still in charge of the state. Is he propped up at his desk by Gwere Mantashe and others who persuaded him not to resign last year? What could possibly have been the cause of the mess that the presidency made of the last few hours ahead of the reshuffle? The cabinet changes themselves contain few surprises. Paul Machatelia was always going to be deputy president. It's a pity Ramaphosa didn't also give him a real job like transport to do at the same time. Deputy presidents with time on their hands end up being more trouble than they're worth. And there's no problem, I wouldn't have thought, uh, if the idea is to cut down the size of the cabinet in adding some real uh, jobs to the deputy uh, title. It's a relief, uh, and faintly, uh, there have been some very amusing comments on social media about to see the back of uh, Lindiwe Sasulu. But just look how smoothly and easily, slickly, Ramaphosa managed to ensure he didn't leave in Kwasazana Dlamini Zuma salaryless, uh, moving her from local government, where she did nothing, to women, youth, and persons with disabilities, where I'm sure. Uh, she'll do absolutely nothing of any value again. But Ramaphosa needed her in the tent. The cabinet's job for the next year, is, at least, is to get the party re-elected in the general election in May next year. That's the sort of beginning and end of it. They need at least to convincingly appear to be fixing all of the things the ANC has broken. Expect levels of load shedding to fall for a while and then rise again in the winter of 24 after you've voted. Expect a few announcements about private rail operators running some lines, though you'll wait forever for data prices to fall in the wake of the spectrum reform, or for the cement industry to celebrate a new dawn uh, as the Ramaphosa infrastructure finally gets some real traction. It's hard to underestimate how brittle, or understate how brittle this presidency is, how disorganized, how existential it all is. It's government on the run, 
everything is up in the air and the game is never to let any of it land lest it be in the wrong place or the wrong hands or be misunderstood or, heaven forbid, unpopular. The president and his Polish spokesman, Vincent Nguyenia, in public assume a studied calm. But on Monday night, after months of waiting, uh, and the announcement is once, twice, three times delayed, you just knew for absolute sure that there was a circus going on behind it all. So, Khoti Enso Ramakhopa, who for the past four years has been running Infrastructure South Africa from the from Ramaphosa's office, literally a few doors down the corridor, is the new Minister of Electricity. It really is hard to explain the creation of this post and second the appointment of Ramakhopa to do it. By all accounts, he's a nice fellow, but he's hardly shot the lights out at infrastructure. Last year, cement producers and big infrastructure finances in the bank were complaining bitterly why there was just no projects to work on. When Ramaphosa first announced that he was creating this job, Greta Mantasha immediately dismissed its future minister as a mere project manager. Now Ramakhopa is going to have to end load shedding without bumping into Mantasha or Pravin Gordon at public enterprises. And neither will have much regard for him. They are in political terms, he's seniors, and the ANC is big on hierarchy. Ramakhopa probably knows this anyway. One of his first interviews on SAFM on Tuesday morning, he said he wouldn't be proposing any new plans for electricity, which I thought was hilarious. He said, quote, my job is to develop an implementation strategy for the president's plan, he said. Well, that's about, you know, that's a, uh, it's hard to respond to that, but it's absolutely saying that he's going to sit down and prepare strategy. And that's what he is, you know. He wrote a, he wrote a paper just before leaving the job, just a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, on on his former job at as the head of infrastructure in the presidency. And he called it South Africa's infrastructure emergency and urgent and collaborative intervention. And he ended it with a list of things that still had to be done, in other words, things that he hadn't done in the four or five years that he's been doing it. He wanted to consolidate project preparation resources from other departments, institutionalize the adoption and utilization of the five-case model for project preparation, commence parliamentary processes to establish the Infrastructure South Africa as an SOE, expedite the development of provincial and network industry infrastructure plans. Good heavens, you have to ask, you know, what has he been doing? Anyway, the list is incredibly uh, long. And then he has an energy list which becomes more relevant um, given his new job. Uh, and it's not very challenging. Uh, he's, he needs to uh, develop 800 to 1,000 megawatts of battery storage. Well, that's actually in the in Guadamantasha's um, 2019 integrated resource plan, uh, which he has ignored. He's, he was supposed to have something like 513 megawatts of battery storage on auction last September, and he hasn't even he hasn't got that far. It's still delayed. Uh, enable municipalities to procure power from IPPs. Well, they're going to do it whether he likes it, whether he enables it or not. Um, uh, identify funding for energy demand side interventions immediately. Um, uh, and the last of his energy ideas was to provide support and or capacity 
for at least 10 non-delegated municipalities to deliver um, with, with large, to deliver to large populations um, with significant challenges to enable them to maintain distribution and billing systems. That's not uh, a lot to write home about, I'm afraid. And, uh, and I, I, really, I really feel sorry for him. He, he is a, he's, a, he's, a, he's an academic type, is Ramakopa. He's not a man of action. Um, uh, neither is his boss, so clearly um, they will be on the same page. Um, but it's it's a desperate it's a desperate move. I have no idea why Cyril thought this was why Cyril thought this was going to be a, 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 a an action a course of action that would get electricity back on track. Obviously, what the ANC wants to do is stop load shedding before the election because it's going to cost them one way or another. Part of the problem that we have in South Africa is that between now and the election, you'll be hard-pressed to find any of the opposition parties offering a genuinely deep and actionable policy plan that the whole nation could get behind. The economic freedom fighters are, I think, beyond any intellectual engagement, but it's the Democratic Alliance, the Freedom Front Plus, the Encarta Freedom Party, Action SA, and the middle-of-the-road independent who could if not make up a majority, then at least become a viable, viable alternative to the to the EFF as an ANC coalition partner. People are writing scarily about the EFF becoming part of the government after the next election, and while it's undoubtedly possible, I still think it's quite remote. As much as uh, people like to write of the EFF as a faction of the ANC, um, it's a faction of a faction at best. Uh, and there's a centre in the ANC that I think would be extremely concerned and extremely wary of um, allowing the EFF into national policy making um, into the national policy making fold. They'd be absolutely hammered by the markets. Um, uh, the, the 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 big question is whether the DA has the numbers or the nous or the leadership to take a group of parties into a coalition should the ANC get, say, 40% of the vote. That's open to question. There's little about the current DA leadership that would lend itself as a viable partner to Ramaphosa or any other possible ANC leader. And the ANC will probably do better than 40%. You know, it is, we know, thanks to a recent Amabungani um investigation russian funded it gets funds through its ownership or its co-ownership of a russian finance manganese mine in south africa not enough not all the money the party gets may go to the right people or the right causes but enough will to make it a really tough campaigner in the field no matter what its position in the polls might be now and in figula mbalula now um out of transport and back in the party as secretary-general, he's a seriously good campaigner. Um, and he'll get, you know, whatever ANC vote there is out there to get, he'll get it out come next May. The DA is also a deep disappointment in its own way. Its polling shows it's doing extremely well next year. But the gut, my gut anyway, says I'm not sure. Its policy positions are minimal. Its main political weapon, good government where it governs, would be really powerful in a modern industrial society, but it has little appeal 
to the poor in townships here or in rural areas. None at all in rural areas. So it's kind of already given up in a sense of national power, of striving for government. And even a giant alliance of centre-right opposition parties is unlikely to do much better than the early to mid-30s if they manage to do anything together at all. You know, the infighting and the fighting going on in coalition governments, uh, particularly between the DA and Action SA, um, really, really doesn't um, conjure up much confidence for um, their ability to act together um, next year uh, for our benefit. What do we do? You know, I think the thing is not to be too fearful. Um, it's nowhere to live for a start. And the fact is that there are reasons to be slightly cheerful or to be hopeful. The ANC is on the way out. Whatever, it ha- whatever happens in the next election, it's finished. Before the decade is out, it will be beyond rescue. Um, before the decade is out, it will be beyond rescue even by the EFF. We can encourage quicker change by voting for responsible, inclusive politicians at every opportunity, municipal, provincial, or national. And I think the point is, you know, for us South Africans who live here because we can't leave or because we choose to stay, is to be philosophical. Change happens slowly. We can't change South African politics overnight, but we can definitely affect it. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Don't ever stop. It works. The prospect of losing overall control of Parliament is terrifying for the ANC, and the opposition puts it under almost no pressure at all. Where are the alternative plans for ESCOM, for Transnet, for water? The DA presented a sort of shadow budget, an alternative budget, just before the national budget last month. And it looked really good until you read the underlying growth assumptions. We would grow GDP, it said, by 3.8%, 4.4%, and 4.4% again over the next three years. That's just cloud cuckoo land that ain't going to happen under any circumstances they're just impossible numbers so what is the point of doing that why cannot we know what a real da budget would look like in real time in real life i don't want to go on about the da i live very comfortable in its embrace in the western cape but i'm conscious that almost everywhere south of the fish river life in south africa is a bit easier but more comfortable than it is to the north it's an old divide still real centuries later. You could probably see it from space, a place where both Boer and British clashed with migrating Africans from a century for a century, from 1779. Those clashes, I'm afraid, still define us very much today. The Fish River was a Rubicon crossed by settlers simply because it was in their way, a mistake when you think about it, of incalculable consequence. That's it from me for now. Thanks for listening. I'll do it again next week.